HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Royal, Calumet, Rumford, Clabber Girl. Are you getting a, a, a little theme going there? Okay, if not, here's the big reveal. We're talking baking powder today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And if you just look in your kitchen cabinet or your pantry, if that's what you call it, or if that's what you have, you'll see it there, one of the familiar red cans. Now, imagine a world without baking powder. It's hard to do. And yet, it wasn't all that long ago that it was patented, about 1856. And what a battle that was. My guest today is a friend and colleague, Linda Civitella, who has written a surprisingly explosive account of the history of that familiar white powder. The book is called Baking Powder Wars, The Cutthroat Food Fight That Revolutionized Cooking, published by University of Illinois Press. In this book, she chronicles, and I quote, the titanic struggle that reshaped America's diet and rewrote its recipes. Linda teaches food history in Southern California 
She's the author of Cuisine and Culture, A History of Food and People, winner of the Gourmand Award for Best Food History Book in the World in English. And she is joins us today from California by phone. Welcome, Linda. Hello, Linda. <laughs> Too many Lindas here today. I don't know. We'll deal with it. We'll deal. <laughs> um, I... You know, this book, it's more than I expected. But then again, I expected it would be from you. And and also, um, having had the the privilege of hearing some of these tales a few years ago, which brings me to the fact that you have been working on this and doing research for quite a few years now on this topic. I guess it was a little larger than you thought it was, huh? It led everywhere. I had no idea. When I started, I thought... Oh, you know, baking powder, I'll find a paragraph somewhere. And, you know, it's like, because who thinks about baking powder? And instead, it turned out to be this massive, like, 200-year battle, and it was, you know, forgotten. It's been forgotten. And you think, how can we forget this an enormous business scandal is, is where it led. It led to the muckraking press. It led to... You know, innovations in artwork for trade cards. It led to everything, and it's in every kitchen in America. And one of the reasons we don't think about it is because they don't advertise. That's you right. have to buy it. You know, everybody has it. There's no advertising. And this was a massive advertising war. Huh. And now it's gone poof. I guess that, you know, a result of too many generations or so many generations having grown up with it and taking it for granted. And as you say, you don't have to advertise and it's there although it's really interesting um i was in an unfamiliar store in a different state and i'm shopping and i went to buy my usual baking powder and their shelves had a totally different brand than i was used to using and that sort of took me aback i remember that um you know it was still a red sort of a red can but it was very different and then I got to thinking about it. Huh? Yeah, there is more than one brand of baking powder. But what? What? I mean, what in the world? I mean, somebody said I thought it was so so interesting. Maybe it was the publisher. Your publisher wrote in the blurb or something um, about the forgotten story of how a dawning industry raised cane, <laughs> raised cane, and cooks uh, cakes and cookies and muffins and pancakes. Um, what? Imagine that. Imagine a world without baking powder. Talk about what you know. What would we do? Uh, that was a brutal world. That was an absolutely. It was a brutal world for women. It was strenuous manual labor to make bread, and before you could make bread, we're talking about a couple of hundred years ago. We're talking about around you know eighteen hundred and before then, or eighteen fifty and before then. You have to make your own yeast before you could make your own bread, and yeast was this slurry. The recipes are for quarts of yeast. And storing things was really difficult because, I mean, you know, there's no, you know, clean wrap or plastic wrap or aluminum foil. There's nothing. How do you keep the bacteria in the air from getting into your yeast? If it's summer, how do you keep your yeast from going sour? If it's winter, how do you keep your yeast from dying? I mean, yeast is like us. Yeast has, a, you know, a temperature range outside of which it dies, you know, it, it doesn't just get sad. It just dies its own function. So there are all these recipes about how to keep your yeast, how to make yeast out of potatoes, how do you make yeast out of milk, how to make yeast 
uh, with hops. And it was because women were the brewers. They brewed beer from all kinds of uh, herbs and whatever was around. You know, they're using what they have. And then, you know, you make this slurry, this giant slurry, and you hope it works. Right. And... I, I I want you to go on, but I, but you brought up um, a couple things that I just want to point out. The first thing you brought up is that yes, it's a giant gender issue because it all starts with bread and who was doing the baking. Well, women. Um, and so yeah, do we have any bread? Sure, I'll get that to you in about forty-eight hours, right? <laughs> but, um, but here in America, of course, uh, women in particular were sort of left to their own devices because. Prior to that, and particularly in Europe, the baking was all done in guilds. They were done in, in community ovens and guilds. So this was uh, this was new territory, uncharted territory. Right. right. It, male male bakers who had been in the baking profession for generations, and that was what they did, and they had no incentive to change anything. Whereas American women who were baking in the home and either, you know, doing it themselves or with uh, daughters or the help of neighbor girls, but it was all women. You're right. It was absolutely gendered. Um, you know, this they were looking for some relief. Uh, so what we have instead of communal ovens, the way it was set up in Europe in the medieval manners, and then the guild system, we had a higher standard of living. This is, again, American exceptionalism. We had a higher standard of living from the beginning because people had ovens in their homes. But because the oven was there, you were expected to use it, and you were expected to produce good bread. The moral pressures on women were enormous, enormous. When I give talks now, uh, I say, how many people bake? And I see a lot of the hands go up. And then I say, how many people bake bread? And only a few hands, very few hands. And then I say, how many people, and these are primarily women, I say, how many people feel guilty because you don't bake bread? And it's like every hand in the room. And all of these pressures are still with us. Mm. We really think that we should be baking our own bread and it it's this mystique you know and in well particularly in this it, yeah. you know it was oh she's the best housewife you know betty friedan's feminist tract in 1963 it was oh yes she's the best housewife on the street she bakes her own bread right. and particularly now in this you know with this whole artisanal bread movement too i mean you know it's like you shouldn't have any commercial baked bread right it's just should be it should be home baked you're right. Right. And I mean, but literal moral pressures were coming from ministers, and it was the idea that you were committing a sin if you did not bake good bread for your family. Uh, it was coming from the medical profession. You're poisoning your family if you don't make good bread. You know, it was coming from academia, and it was coming from other women. You know, Catherine Beecher said, you know, you should be just, a woman should be just as ashamed, more ashamed for baking bad bread than if she's out of fashion or, you know, anything else. It's like, this is bread. And again, bread is the staple food. It's not, uh, you know, would you like some bread with that? It's like, would you like something with that bread? People were eating about a pound per person per day. So when you baked bread for the week, you're baking 28, 30 pounds of bread. This is a massive, massive amount of work. So women are looking for shortcuts. Yeah, shortcuts. And there there you bring us to that point, the shortcuts. Um, 
and not just breads. I mean, any kind of like a cake, you know, a, a, not a, a sweet birthday type cake we know, but, a, you know, a, a cake that would have been a major process, too, because that had to be made with yeast. So you think that this was um, this was an effort to satisfy our, as, as has been said, our hurry up attitude towards cooking? Yeah, well, again, the women were, you know, they had other things they had to do, and, you know, including, I mean, cooking for the family, making all the clothes for the family, which started with spinning the, you know, like shearing a sheep and then spinning the wool, uh, and child rearing. You know, I mean, they had double digit children back then. You were pregnant was the normal state of things if you were married. So this is a difficult, very difficult life. Um, and, you know, it's uh, looking for a change. It's, and also, by the end of that week, if you're baking bread once a week, by the end of the week, what kind of shape do you think that bread is in? Right. I mean, that, that's some nasty bread. Yeah. Um, and you didn't throw it away. You'd use it, you know, if it got hard and stale, you'd put it in your chowder or your stews to thicken it. And some of the breads, and I've made these, and I've made them using heirloom flour, just to see what we're talking about. The main one in New England was called rye and engine, which was rye and cornmeal. And, you know, again, one of the other things I talk about in this book is the massive racism that we find in in food and in, in cooking and in cookbooks. Uh, but it was half and half, half rye, half corn. And there's no gluten. There's nothing in corn that yeast can grab onto. Corn and yeast look heavy at each loaf. other, and they don't recognize yeah. each other. Yeah. They're from different planets. Rye has gluten, but very weak and very little. So you can make that bread, and as I said, I've done it. And you know, you can—it's just bread wrestling. It's not even kneading. You know, you're just like going a few rounds with the dough, trying to make it into something. And it's dense. It's very heavy, and I'm sure it's nutritious. And you really feel like you ate something, but but it's it's so dense and the crust is murder. It was like old people, babies. You can't do anything with this. And you you had this bread left at the end of the week. You used that crust to scrub your house. Hmm. Well, it could be a good shot put. You know, it could be some a weapon. It could, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, yeah. But there was there was a leavening agent. Well, there were several different types of leavening agents um, that were in use. Um, and that was potash and pearl ash. Um, but those weren't even commonly used until quite late before. Well, uh, they, they were things that women could make at home and they made them as the names say potash, pearl ash out of ashes, um, vegetable burned vegetable matter. And, um, it gives you a kind of lie, and lye has been used in food to preserve things. Um, you know, we have recipes from the Roman Empire about lye and olives. Lutefisk, that's lye, mm-hmm. the root part, and the fisk part is the fish. Um, but this is also an astringent, I mean, a tremendous astringent, because the same cookbooks, that, and these were also lifestyle manuals, they had how to treat invalids, and uh, they were philosophical statements about women, girls, and marriage, and the training in the home of women, and what is proper nutrition, and the 
the the recommendation, you know, for pearl ash, it's like, here, well, you can use this in cooking, but you have to dissolve it first. And if you don't do it right, it'll leave flecks and you'll have yellow spots and, you know, it will be <laughs> uneven. But also, if you mix it with water, don't leave it on a, you know, if it spills, don't leave it on a painted surface for very long because it'll strip, it'll strip the paint off your floorboard. Oh, do I want to eat that? Right. <laughs> right. And they were using, they were trying things. I mean, we're talking desperation here. These were the original desperate housewives. They're, they were using smelling salts, smelling salts also, which yeah. are ammonia. That's mm. ammonia because um, there is a thing called Baker's ammonia. And, again, these are all different formulas. But, I mean, we don't go, like, into the medicine cabinet now and go, hey, you know, what's in here that I can put in my cake? Um, you know, it's it just the the boldness of these women you know, the, to experiment with things, this American exceptionalism of being open to the new and trusting your own experience, you yeah. know, and saying, I'll be the judge of this. I think this will work. I'm going to give it a shot. Um, you know, because we didn't have these centuries and centuries of this won't work, that won't work. The minute Americans came to the United States, well, to America, to North America, and started cooking with corn, they were all bets are off. Because in Europe, corn was food for animals. Mm-hmm. Corn was food, as they said in England, for the savages. You know, like civilized people don't eat corn. The Americans came here and they went, we like this stuff. Corn is good. We like it. It makes good bread. And everything else they've been told and went out the window. <laughs> All right. So bring us then up to, well, not date, but up to the time when People started to play around with some formulas, and and we got sort of what we know as baking powder. Well, the first, right, women took this, uh, you're right, they took it as far as they they could themselves, and then science took over, and chemistry was new in the 19th century, and the first patent comes from a professor of chemistry at Harvard, and he had five daughters, and uh, they all went to Wellesley, and they probably spent a fair amount of time in the kitchen, and he had tried these other uh, things that were around the ammonia, the cream of tartar, the, all of these other things. And he said, I'm going to come up with a better way to do this, to leaven bread, and it's going to put nutrition back in. Because even then they knew that white flour had had the nutrition stripped out of it. And that was Rumford. That was the very first baking powder. Then the patent was from 1856. And what you were talking about at the beginning of the show about not being able to find your usual baking powder, there's still a tremendous amount of regionality in the United States in baking powder. And Rumford is in New England mm-hmm. and started in New England, still very common in New England, and might not be known in as much in other parts of the country, whereas baking powders that are known in other parts of the country might not be known in New England. And that's one of the reasons the book is also divided geographically, which is the baking powder, the beginnings in New England. And then we have the baking powder companies in the Midwest about 50 years later at the end of the 19th century coming out of um, Illinois and Indiana. So yeah, gender-driven, regional-driven, all kinds of things, you know. So how do you market this? How do you convince people that here's something they can use? You know, this is a huge thing with the startup. These were startup businesses in a new field. So 
Um, well, and as long and along with startups, there's always competition, and then come as you write so so well with humor and eloquently um, the battles, the battles that that went on in uh, advertising and you know the corporate and the corporate warfare and. You know what's between those with cream of tartar and the you know, the whole alum arg- arguments and this was this was quite uh, a to do. Nobody would quite imagine how ruthless some of these producers were. Right. Well, you had by the end of the nineteenth century, you had five hundred and thirty four baking powder companies wow. in the United States. And most of these were small and regional because it was so easy to make baking powder. Anybody could do it, and it was very profitable. And by then, um, the you know baking powder had become standard. Where you have baking soda, which is different. Baking soda is only one element of baking powder. So you had that you know base, and then you had an acid. And the acid was cream of tartar. The acid was uh, sodium aluminum sulfate. You know it was. There were different kinds of acids you could have. Rumford was a phosphate and a buffer, which is cornstarch, to keep them from blowing up. And all of these things, except cream of tartar, which was a byproduct of wine production and had to be imported, all of these were readily available. Um, The alum, as it was called, was mined in the United States. So here's the railroad. It's like, yeah, I'll buy some alum. I'll buy mm-hmm. some cornstarch. I got some baking soda. I'll mix it up, uh, you know, my own little formula. I got a, you know, a little shop, a little grocery. I put it in some cans and slap my own label on it, and there it is. So people were buying a lot of this locally. It's when we get the competition for the national market at the end of the 19th century that it gets vicious, really vicious and ferocious. And at that time, there were thousands, maybe 5,000 or so um, small, one one baking powder company, Royal, had contracts, like 5,000 different contracts with newspapers. So you had little newspapers all over the United States. Um, you know, in this age of diminishing newspapers and print material, it's really kind of stunning when you think about this, because every town had its own, you know, they probably had their own baking powder and their own newspaper. Um, (laughs) So advertising, and then you get this massive scandal that went on for six years where one of the baking powder companies just flat out bribed a state legislature to pass a law making its competitors' products illegal and off the shelves, and people got arrested for buying baking powder. Wow. I mean, I, you know, you hear tell in even in this day and age of some of the, you know, the battles that go on with dis. Well, it's more the distributors, um, and you know, not carrying a particular brand, and then and a certain brand can't get in a grocery store because the distributor doesn't carry it. But we're talking about just in general. These were they're just they're shooting people back and forth over over, you know. Buying the wrong, right? There were baking trials that went up to the one of them at least went up to the United States Supreme Court over baking powder because this man owned a store and he said, "I carry this brand of baking powder." And the state of Missouri, the one that got bribed, said, "Oh, it's illegal for you to do that." And you know, we're taking you to court, and mm-hmm. it went on for you know quite a while, and um, the Supreme Court finally said, you know, you didn't raise this issue in the lower court, so we're not going to to rule on this. But that's not the only time that uh, baking powder issues went up to higher courts. When governors got involved, 
health departments, local and state, the Congress, the United States Department of Agriculture, the Federal Trade Commission. I mean, every federal agency that was connected to food um, got involved in this. And, and what you see here is, you know, in this gilded age cutthroatness of businesses using the federal government, using public health as a way to try to control their competitors or just knock their competitors out of the market. It's like, my product is pure. We see this, the purity bell ringing all the time. It's like, my product is pure. Our product is pure. That's poison. Their product is poison. And you have fake health agencies being started um, with very you know, important sounding as the national health organization. It's like, oh, the National Health Organization says that this baking powder is no good. Well, it turns out it's the National Health Organization was three people from one baking powder company. Well, you mentioned pure and um, and the questions that people have. And I want to, people to hold that thought for a moment because I want to come back to that right after we take a short break. We're talking with Linda okay. Civitello. I'm here. Baking powder. I went down to North Carolina Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. One of the nice things about Bob's Red Mill is it's the only that I know of national supplier that's easily available for lots of interesting, hard-to-get grains and other seed products. So, you know, before Bob's Red Mill became widely available, you couldn't go get something like quinoa very easily, or you couldn't go get spelt easily in small quantities. But now you go to any one of the huge number of stores that carry Bob's Red Mill, and you can get smaller amounts of these really interesting, fun things to play with. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Carrie Diamond, host of Radio Cherry Bomb, the show about women and food on Heritage Radio Network. Tune in on Thursdays at 1 p.m. to hear interviews with the most interesting women in the world of food. Support our show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Hi, we're back. I'm talking with Linda Civitello about her new book, Baking Powder Wars, the cutthroat food fight that revolutionized cooking. And it's funny, during the break, uh, my engineer, Dave Tattashore, poked his head in the door and said, wow, sounds like you're talking about drugs. (laughs) And you know what? (laughs) Well, he's not far off because we were talking about pure and people being concerned with what's in this can. You know... Um, a lot of people must have had some qualms about adding these chemicals, as they would think of them, chemicals, to their food and to their cooking, <clears throat> and the accusations that would fly from one company to another. And along, t- along that same time came the, the Pure Food Drug Act. Um, so go into that a little bit. What, how, how did they battle this concept of chemicals in, in cake batters? 
Well, you had a couple of things. Again, this is these are women, and you've got American women who I've been using this particular pearl ash or combination of chemicals that I put together myself in my kitchen, and it works fine. So baking powder companies had to convince these women that they really didn't know what they were doing. And, you know, this is the basis of, of advertising is to convince us that our our lives will be horrible without this product or that we really don't know what we're doing, you know, that whatever we're, we're doing at home isn't as good as the commercial version, the professional version. Um, and at some point, it just became easier. The convenience factor really outweighed absolutely everything else. So women who had qualms about adding chemicals, uh, that was overcome because, I mean, just everybody they knew was doing it. And also, uh, baking powder companies would do demonstrations. They went door to door with teams of women, or they left samples on the door, free samples. And and we see this, but if women were doing this, uh, going out in groups, you have two, three women, and they'd go and knock on doors, there was always a man somewhere in charge of this this group of women. Um, But so you had demonstrations in the home. You had demonstrations in public places. You had, and you know, and here's a cake. Here it is. Here's how easy it is to make a cake. And the other thing that it was easy when we're talking about bread is America's bread is the baking powder biscuit. That's That's what came out of this. Other countries don't have this. You know, they have sourdough bread. They have, you know, crusty bread. We've got the baking powder biscuit. And this is, uh, as I put it's the little black dress of bread. You can dress it up. You can dress it down. If you roll it out and stamp it out, you have very pretty uniform biscuits. Or if you're in a hurry, you can just drop the biscuits onto the sheet and bake them. And they won't be as uniform or as pretty, but... They'll taste just as good. Right. You can add sugar to them, and then you get the American classic strawberry shortcake. That's a baking powder biscuit with sugar and cream added to it. Um, if you put it on cobbler, that's the topping on cobbler. That's a baking powder biscuit dough. Uh, baking powder biscuits, they're the dumplings in chicken and dumplings. If you want to go savory, you can add herbs to it. You know, you can make sliders out of it. You can make pizza out of it. I mean, you can make pretty much anything out of this baking powder biscuit dough. And that's why when Bisquick showed up in 1931, it was jumping off the shelves, just flying off the shelves. And they had like, I don't know, a hundred imitators within a few months. Wow. And it was because the package said 90 seconds package to oven. <laughs> Well, that was that was pretty good. It was actually it was a very good product. I mean, you know, it was it, I must say, still on the shelves today. Right. Uh, and undoubtedly, this you know this invention or or manufacture of this baking powder, this magic powder, um, spawned a, a whole publishing industry of new cookbooks and new recipes. Well, they were proprietary cookbooks. You're Ah, right. There was a a large industry, but every baking powder company had its own cookbooks. And 
I have several of these. Some of them are very beautiful, but the artwork from the 1890s when color lithography was invented and you start getting the, you know, and you see the fashions, the leg of button sleeves and, um, you know, the buttons and everything on these. And then children's cookbooks also. There's a whole series uh, that was done by the Ruth Plumley, who did the Wizard of Oz books, you know, was illustrated mm-hmm. uh, beautifully. And they were just, they'd have about 10 recipes. It would be like uh, the adventures of Captain Cookie, um, Billy and Bunbury. And, and there's always a birthday cake because we're Americans. Oh, and yeah. when you say oh, cake, yeah. you mean birthday. <laughs> well, and indeed, you know, you have said before that baking powder, it's kind of an American thing. And we talked about um, the American exceptionalism. Covered that, but there's also another interesting, and you and you mentioned racism and and um, Native Americans, um, you know, helping us adapt our, the corn to our recipes. Um, but this is the the it was called an agent of assimilation baking powder. Talk about that and what you mean by that. Um, when I mean this is a, a product that is just so perfect that. All women, in, as immigrant groups came here in waves, you see them taking. You see them taking to baking powder instantly, and we have this in the in the cookbooks. And one of the first groups, um, Irish soda bread. The soda is baking soda, and um, sometimes people added cream of tartar also, which makes it a baking powder bread. So they get a little puffier Irish soda bread, and I think right. the, the Swedish were were very keen to to use this right. as well. This right? is the Scandinavians and the Europeans, and even now they don't use it in bread. They, you know, they don't have a baking powder biscuit the mm-hmm. way we do and mm-hmm. things like that. But uh, cake desserts is where it really showed up, and it's it's in a Scandinavian cookbook that's dual language. I mean, they had they weren't even speaking English when they started using baking powder. They took to it immediately. Um, German cookbooks, and I, I deal with all these cookbooks. Jewish cookbooks, um, Hispanic, and in the Hispanic cookbooks, the first Hispanic cookbook um, written in the United States at the end of the 19th century. Uh, she says, you know, she hates, you know, what the Americans did to her culture in California and taking over the country. And, you know, here's her, you know, here are my recipes. But there's baking powder <laughs> in there. You know, it's like you've got this combination of of old, you know, ancient historic technology with this brand new American technology. So you've got like recipes that we use a matate and then others, you know, the grinding, the manual grinding stone. And then you've got baking powder because <laughs> baking powder will raise maize. It will leaven corn. It That's will right. do what yeast cannot do. And also baking powder now that, you know, the cans, once they figured out how to keep the lid on the can and keep moisture out, and the cornstarch helped with that, too. Um, baking powder doesn't care what the temperature is. Baking powder doesn't care if it's hot or it's cold, and wet or it's dry. It doesn't respond to humidity. Baking powder doesn't care if you've never baked before in your life or if you're an expert baker. It's foolproof. It's amazing stuff. <laughs> well, what what role really did advertising play in this whole um, uh, animosity between the different companies. I mean, advertising was still, I mean, it was very much a a, um, hands-on, small, I'm going to say small industry kind of thing, was not for sure, but it was more personal, the advertising. What 
Um, what what it role began, did that play? Advertising really began with the, the patent medicine salesmen, the, the snake oil guys uh-huh. who were, you know, take this. You know, take take a spoonful of this, and you'll feel better. It'll cure insomnia. It'll cure if you sleep too much. It'll cure a heart disease. It'll cure cancer. It'll make your life better. Take four times a day. Well, you know, it's loaded with alcohol, which is why, yeah, it'll make you feel better. Um, but this advertising, because in the 19th century, no control over anything. First of all, nothing was illegal. You know, there was heroin and cough medicine. There yeah, was, Coca-Cola, right? <laughs> right. You could go, you could buy anything over the counter if you had the money. And, in fact, one of the, um, one of the, the statements they were using to promote baking powder, it's like not, no baking powder should be illegal. You should be able to buy whatever baking powder you want because people have these, these little kits that they carry with them, you know, with hypodermics in them, because they like to inject morphine. And if you can inject yourself with morphine, you really ought to be able to buy any kind of baking powder you want. See, we are talking um, about drugs. I know it. Right. Yes, 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 we are, we are. <laughs> um, but advertising to reach people, because literacy has always been valued in America, and ads in the 19th century were very text-dense. You would see a page in a in a magazine or a newspaper, and it was text, top to bottom, about why you should buy this, with testimonials from this professor and that uh, baker, and, you know, just all of this text, text, text. And now, you know, it's like no text, all pictures. Uh, but that color lithography, we had trade cards where you would have, uh, and people were beginning to be upwardly mobile. They were having their own homes, and they needed to decorate them. So these cards were pretty, too. You could display them. And there were also uh, groups where girls were taught scrapbooking. They put the trade, these pretty trade cards, in the scrapbook. And what it was really teaching them was to be consumers, because the biggest shift here is where we see women being shifted going from being producers, from making things, from being responsible for the production of food in the home, to being consumers, to right. buying food. Well, it, the and I noticed a preponderance of babies and wholesome-looking people, of course. But that's that. Nothing's new. I mean, nothing's on the trade the same cards, thing today on mean? the trade cards and right in some of the, um, the right. advertisements. And then came cartoons and. You have your most explosive chapter, I guess I will say, when you, uh, that would be chapter seven, <laughs> when you talk about the um, uh, the antitrust, I guess maybe some of the antitrust, the scandals that blow up. What Talk about the Missouri baking power scandal. That was a yeah. That was chapter a big seven. One. I like chapter seven. It's called Outlaws in Missouri, um, and and that's when Royal Baking Powder went to Missouri and bribed the state legislature, the, the Senate only, uh, to pass a law saying that the alum in its competitors' baking powders were uh, was poison, and that was when all of these baking powders got removed from the shelf. And the law was passed in 1899. It was not repealed until 1905. And during that time, you had, you know, people complaining about this. Uh, you know, why do why can't I have my own, buy my own baking powder? And people who had been manufacturing baking powder were going, you know, losing this livelihood. And we're talking at that time about a million dollars worth of baking powder. 
Wow. That's a million dollars, you know, 120 years ago, which was actual money um, <laughs> back then. But, um, you know, just uh, Missouri had uh, a history of corruption at the time, and um, but, you know, it was open to this kind of thing. But the leg- buying the legislature, bribing the legislature wasn't cheap. It was easy, but it wasn't cheap. And one of the uh, people who administered the bribe said, you know, this was the most expensive legislature I ever went up against. And it completely, you know, it completely destroyed the market price for legislatures. Wow. (laughs) Amazing. You mean, it's there's so much involved in this one product um, that it's amazing that, that that this hasn't, you know, a history of this has not been compiled prior to this time. Any thoughts on that, why this hasn't been looked into? Well, I think the same things that make baking powder appealing to Americans, you know, reveal a lot about our character, which is speed, forward movement, uh, you know, this velocity, convenience. And we're always looking ahead. We're looking towards the new. What's the next thing? Uh, You know, some cultures are not open to new things, and it shows in the food. You know, cultures that are eating the same things that they were eating 4,000 years ago are probably not open to new political ideas or, you know, gender ideas or things like that, whereas Americans are like, what's new? What's that? What do you have? We're curious and we're open. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, I want to try that. I want to make this better. You know, we want to do the next, the better thing. And it, it's just, it's, it's who we are, uh-huh. you know. And so we're not looking towards the past. As a historian, um, you know, I know this. When I taught history in high school, um, kids would come in. They didn't know whose colony we'd been. They thought we were Spain's colony. They didn't know what the Fourth of July was about. And these were juniors in high school some of them. Um, so we don't look back, you know, or now it's like, well, the Civil War was important in our history. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't know what that was about or where it was fought or, you know, it's condominiums now. I mean, there are these constant battles over battlefields is, you know, do we want to preserve this? Do we want to not? And, uh, you know, we'll have condominiums instead of a battlefield, we'll have a convenience store instead of uh, we change. Right. We change we constantly. Do change. We do. You're right. Um, I often ask my uh, guess a particular question, and, and not an unusual one to ask someone who's written a book. But um, is when you were doing the research for the book, was there, you know, like something one particularly surprising element about the background of baking powder that I mean that, that really took you took you aback, took you by surprise? Um. A couple of things. One of them was Native American fry bread, which um, I is a baking powder fritter that's fried, mm-hmm. and that came from when they were, you know, incarcerated, uh, the Navajos at, um, and, and other tribes, and it's now spread through all the tribes, and there's huge controversy over fry bread now, uh, because it is not indigenous to any of the tribes, but the, the culture of being incarcerated and subjugated was so ferocious that this is in every tribe. This is known to every tribe. And on a lighter note, uh, the thing that blew me away was I, the Indianapolis 500, you know, gentlemen, start your engines. And this is because the Indianapolis Speedway is owned by one of the major baking powder companies. Huh. 
Interesting. Well, yeah, there was a big one in, in Terre Haute, if I recall, right? Still is. Clabber Girl. Clabber Girl Clabber was Girl. in Terre Haute. Yeah, right. It's the leading baking powder company in the United States, and Chapter 10, I believe, talks about what happened, how that went from just a little local baking powder in, in Indiana to the leader in the nation and a position it still occupies. Hmm. You know, and there's a tremendous amount of philanthropy on the part of the, the major baking powder companies. Um, the Calumet was one of the, the stud farm, Calumet Farm, which produced, um, it changed the way that horse farms were, stud farms were run. Um, and thoroughbreds were, were handled and resulted in, I mean, nine Kentucky or seven Kentucky Derby winners, um, triple crown winners. And it came out of the acumen that was learned in the baking powder business was applied to this new business of, of the horses. Um, you know, there are endowed, Harvard has two endowed chairs directly connected to baking powder. Yale has one, at least. Um, you know, it just, that, that is, like that is surprising. Yeah, um, that's, that's very surprising. Um, yeah. Interesting. Organizations for the blind that are funded by baking powder, uh, companies, Royal funded one. Um, so Helen Keller was, um, connected to that. I mean, just everywhere. It just went everywhere. It just constantly, constantly surprised me. It's like every time I read something, it was like, oh, oh my gosh, what am I, you know, this is, this is enormous. This is just <laughs> enormous. It leads into politics, into health, and into every single kitchen. It's not just the baking powder biscuit. It's pancakes. It's waffles. It's quick breads, which are, again, an American exceptionalism. Right. This is, these are our breads. Pumpkin bread, banana bread, cranberry bread, gingerbread, the soft one, not the cracker, like the gingerbread people. That's an American invention, gingerbread, and that's the first time in history in 1796 in those recipes for gingerbread that pearl ash, which is the forerunner of baking powder, shows up. Mm-hmm. Now, Amelia Simmons mentions, uh, yeah. she mentions it, mentions it in her cookbook, right, in 1796, right? Right, and, right. Uh, American cookery, you know, yeah. and it's two, It's not until 200 years later that we see in the 1990s, so Amelia Simmons was the 1790s, in the 1990s, finally, in the joy of cooking, we see no mention of double acting, single acting, what kind of baking powder, just baking, baking powder. powder. Yeah, yeah. It is fascinating reading, I must say. You, you, well, thank you. <laughs> you have managed to pack a lot of, well, a lot of, every, it affected every phase of life, and, and you managed to pack it all in there. Um, I encourage people to take a look at it because it's not just about baking biscuits, believe me. It's <laughs> uh, the baking powder wars, the cut, throat food fight that revolutionized cooking by linda civitello linda it has been a pleasure as always to talk to you and i i i can't wait to to find out what you're going to delve into next (laughs) this has been wonderful okay great tell me called screen cuisine food and film from prohibition to james bond oh that'll be great we'll have to do a video chat on that one (laughs) (laughs) definitely well thanks so much for joining me it has been a real pleasure and thank you for listening this has been a taste of the past i'm your host linda palaccio here on heritage radio network
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries, Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash freshpickings. What do linoleum, bed sheets, and nutritional supplements have in common? They're all made from flax. Flax is an amazingly versatile food and fiber crop. In fact, it's one of the oldest fiber crops in the world, known to have been cultivated in ancient Egypt and China. If it seems like flax is good for everything, that's because it is. Its Latin name is Usititissimum, which means most useful. Welcome to Fresh Pickings. I'm your host, Kat Johnson, and today we're getting flaxy. On this episode, we're going to talk to Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network, about all things flaxseed. Then, vegan low-glycemic load blogger and chef Elizabeth Taylor, yeah, you heard right, will give us a recipe that puts flaxseed meal to good use. So stay tuned. You know, I don't think it's fair that cotton is called the fabric of our lives when flax is clearly the superior crop. Flax? What the flax is that? Okay, Jordan, flax is a plant that has all kinds of uses, including textiles. It's what they use to make linen. Linen? That just makes me think of old hippies and high school English teachers. Okay, that's fair. But cotton makes me think of sweaty gym shirts and tidy whities I'd take a billowy pair of linen pants over that any day. Besides, Europe and North America depended on flax for vegetable-based cloth until the 19th century, and then cotton overtook it. Flax fibers are two times as strong as cotton fibers. Okay, that's a good point. But is the flax that goes into pants and tablecloths the same as the flax that we eat in CD bread? I think so, but it sounds like I should probably call an expert to help sort that out. While flax refers to the plant itself, it also refers to the unspun fibers of the plant. The species is known only as a cultivated plant and appears to have been domesticated from the wild species, Linum biene, called pale flax. I'm talking with Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network and co-owner of The Brooklyn Kitchen, an awesome cooking store in Williamsburg. So Harry, what's the deal with eating flax? 
Well, Kat, flaxseed sprouts are edible, and they have a slightly spicy flavor. In northern India, flaxseed, called tisi or alsi, is usually roasted, powdered, and then eaten with boiled rice and a little water and a little salt. It's also used in sabji curries. Oh, I love curry. So are the seeds edible too, or just the sprouts? Oh, the seeds are totally edible. Um, But if you grind them first, it unlocks a lot of its health benefits. Flaxseed meal is much more readily digested than eating the whole seed. And although flaxseed meal contains all sorts of healthy components, primarily there are three of them that are important. Omega-3, essential fatty acids, lignans, and fiber. The omega-3 fatty acids are the good fats that have been shown to have heart-healthy effects. Two tablespoons of flax meal offers 2,430 milligrams of omega-3s. Lignans have both plant estrogen and antioxidant qualities, and flaxseed contains almost 80 times as much lignin as any other plants. Flaxseed meal is also high in dietary fiber, which contains both soluble and insoluble fiber. It's a powerful, natural cholesterol controller. That is a lot. So based on all of that, I am assuming that flaxseed meal must be huge in the health community. It absolutely is. And we have people coming into the Brooklyn Kitchen talking about flaxseed and flaxseed oil all the time. Often they look like they're coming straight from yoga class. (laughs) But they're not just jumping on the modern bandwagon. Flax is thought to have been cultivated in Babylon as early as 3000 BC. And in the 8th century, King Charlemagne believed so strongly in the health benefits of flaxseed that he passed laws requiring his subjects to consume it. Wow, you know, I'm glad that we have separation of flax and state now. (laughs) Me too, although perhaps we should all be eating more flax. Experts today say that we, in fact, have research that backs Charlemagne's claims. So you don't have to eat it on its own. Flaxseed meal, like the one that Bob's Red Mill makes, is freshly milled and preserves natural oils and nutrients. You can add it to bread, pancakes, muffins, bars, cookies, all sorts of things. I like putting flaxseed on my oatmeal in the morning. So one other question I have for you, um, what about flaxseed oil? Well, I love flaxseed oil. It has a really great nutty flavor, and I love to put it on salads or put it into marinades, though my number one use for flaxseed oil is for seasoning cast iron cookware. It polymerizes, which creates that great nonstick surface that we all love about cast iron. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that settles it. Flax is a wonder ingredient that we all should have in our kitchen. Thanks, Harry. I'm here with my longtime friend, Elizabeth Taylor, who is an animal-loving vegan food blogger and not a diamond-laden actress. Elizabeth runs her blog, VLGL, a collection of vegan, low-glycemic-load culinary creations. Elizabeth, can you tell us what vegan, low-glycemic-load means? Hi, Kat. Of course. Firstly, veganism is a lifestyle by which the practitioners avoid use of all animal products, particularly where food is concerned. Veganism is becoming increasingly well-known in this day and age. The glycemic load part is a little less mainstream. The glycemic load is a measure of how a food will affect the blood sugar of the person who eats it. Foods that have a high glycemic load are things like processed carbohydrates and sugary sweets. I personally practice a vegan, low-glycemic load eating philosophy to avoid inflammation while staying true to my long-time plant-based lifestyle. Great. So what is, um, on a day-to-day basis, what does your VLGL diet look like? VLGL is a whole foods, plant-based way of cooking and eating that emphasizes non-starchy vegetables, whole fruits, nuts, legumes, seeds, 
and certain whole grains. That sounds reasonable and delicious. So what recipe are you going to share with us? Today I brought to you my go-to grain-free granola recipe. I have always loved a crunchy bowl of cereal in the morning, and while I love to watch my morning cartoons with an enormous bowl of Cocoa Puffs as a kid, my adult self is all about granola topped with fruit and plant-based milk. Unfortunately, even so-called healthy store-brought granolas are so loaded with sugar and grains that they tend to have a moderate or high glycemic load. So, I like to make this grain-free granola for the taste sensation without the blood sugar spike. That's, that's great. Actually, can you develop a recipe for grain-free Cocoa Puffs next? Um, but what makes your granola grain-free? So, no lie, I have actually been daydreaming about how to make VLGL Cocoa Puffs happen, but in the meantime, this granola is pretty fantastic. It incorporates shredded coconut and sliced almonds for crunch, cinnamon and nutmeg for that classic cozy flavor, a little agave nectar for sweetness and to form those classic granola clusters, and for some beneficial omega-3 fatty acids, walnuts, hemp hearts, and of course, ground flaxseed. It is delicious topped with berries and plant-based milk, particularly coconut or almond milk. Thanks to Elizabeth Taylor for sharing her tips for using flaxseed meal. You can find her recipe for grain-free granola at bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Well, that's just about everything you could possibly want to know about flaxseed meal. If you liked what you heard, be sure to check out our other episodes of Fresh Pickings and learn more about Bob's Red Mill's favorite ingredients, including some delicious recipes and great coupon offers by going to bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Bob's Red Mill believes in good food for all. For Heritage Radio Network, I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Thanks for joining us.